Well, let's come to page 12. And I want us to get into this. I want to spend a little bit of time now going in more detail into the Tabernacle of David as a place of unveiled intimacy and worship. Now for David, this was the most important thing. I've written a few lines there which I don't, I'm not going to quote. You can read them. But this one thing marks out the heart of David's tabernacle more than any other thing. And I want us to look at these scriptures. I want you to come with me first of all to John chapter 4. And look, let's look at a few things which are said in the scriptures. If you come to verse 21, Jesus is talking to the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and she wants a debate as to how worship should be conducted because to her, worship is a religious ceremony which you go through. And he puts her right immediately. He says, woman, verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither in this mountain or in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. I want this to grip your heart. Just think about this, because I just feel a tremendous burden. Something absolutely explosive and amazing is going to happen in the nation of Israel soon. I know it in my spirit. Something amazing is going to happen to, to the Islamic world. When I used to go regularly to East Europe in the, in the worst days of communism, it seemed such an in, invincible force that it was going to take over. I watched African nation after African nation. I watched my beloved India become more and more sucked into communism and it looked like it was going to take over the whole world. But there was prayer and in 1987 everything changed. Although communism continued for another almost three years, the power behind it was taken from it. I remember um, listening to even communist officials making jokes about communism because they didn't believe in it anymore. But the system went on for another three years and, and in, it was in uh, May 1989 I was asked to write an article for the Charisma magazine on what I saw for Europe in the 90s. And in May 1989 I wrote that communism will, will collapse and our main adversaries will be secular humanism and Islam. I said that Germany will be reunited. Now, it wasn't hard to write that because already you knew that communism was a joke. And I wrote that article in May 1989. Before it was published in January 1990, everything I wrote had been fulfilled. All that surprised me was the speed. And to think that Albania actually asked Christians to come and set up their new education system. That is absolutely unbelievable if you know what Albania was like in 1988. Now I'm saying this because in the 90s God spoke to me and he said this to me, he said what I did to communism in the 80s I will do to Islam in the 90s. Yeah, yeah but listen, listen this is what he said. He said, I will discredit it. That was the word I heard. Now, if you, if you get to meet people in Iraq and Iran 
and in Saudi Arabia, you'll find that there's an educated middle class that is totally disillusioned about Islam. They're waiting for the moment when they can break out. And it could happen as suddenly as that. Now just imagine if there's a total disillusionment about Islam around the world and a thousand million people suddenly want to find a new purpose in life. Now are we ready for it? There's such enormous things on the horizon that we can't fiddle around playing silly little church games. There's something so big, so enormous. And, and as I, mentioned, I read to you yesterday, Isaiah 19, with Egypt and Syria and Israel all together, loving each other, visiting each other's nations, and all of them being the delight of God's heart. How can you conceive of that unless something incredible of immense power happens in all these nations? And God chose to be born as a Jew. He was born of the tribe of Judah. He was born of David's line and lineage. And the tragedy is that they don't know how to worship God. I'm talking generally. There's a few that have been enlightened. Do you understand what I'm saying? And this ought to be an unbearable ache in our heart that somehow the veil will be taken away and something glorious happens. And so from the Islamic side, because this is the only solution to the Middle East, is if they find the Saviour if the kingdom comes. And, and I believe in the next, I would expect easily within the next decade, probably much quicker than many of us imagine, we're going to say that all this take place before our eyes. It's going to be absolutely incredible. But it's going to be the power of David's tabernacle that's going to cause this to come to pass. But it begins with intimacy. Jesus said to this woman, you don't know who you worship. You just worship. That's true, probably, of 90% of Christians who go to church. They believe in Jesus, but they don't know him. And many, many Christians have one-third, or at the most, two-thirds of the Trinity revealed to them. Evangelical Christianity knows Jesus as their Savior, but many only know about him as their Savior. And then those that have been filled with the Spirit, they've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. But what, what breaks my heart is that almost nobody knows the Father. There's a theological belief in the Trinity, but for many evangelicals, the Trinity is, is the Son, the Spirit, and the Word of God. And Father is a theological concept which is totally unknown to them. And the reason I'm saying this is that there's the the day that I got baptised in the Holy Spirit as a, as a Baptist minister of the only Baptist church in Bombay, the first thing that the God showed me was the love of the Father. That was, what he, that was the priority with him. And I had that experience which is described in Galatians chapter 4 and again in Romans 8 that he's called the spirit of adoption of sons. That's his name. And he comes into our hearts crying, Daddy! Father, and I as this stiff old British Baptist, I had a revelation of the love of the Father that just made me, even me, me, dance all around my study saying, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. That was 1965. 
and it still thrills me. It, it just changed everything. I could talk for hours about this. When Jesus is about to go and be crucified in the great famous, what we call the upper room discourse in John's Gospel, from John 13 through to John 16, and then on into the prayer of John 17. He says in verse 25, he says, look, I've done my best with figurative language to tell you about the Father. But he said, the Spirit's coming, and when he comes, he's going to show you plainly about the Father. And when you've had that revelation, he said, then you will know how to pray. He said, up to now, you've never asked anything in my name. And I, I want to just, I just felt God tell me as I was sitting there, he said, Alan, take a few minutes to get this revelation through. Because that changed everything. It changed everything. When I, when I comprehended or the beginning of a continuing revelation of, of what it actually means to know the Father. It's not possible without the Holy Spirit, but the, the priority of the Spirit, according to that upper room discourse, is that the Spirit should come and he should show us the Father. And when he shows us the Father, our understanding of our sonship becomes a, an incredible revelation to us. And I've lived that way now, what, how many years? 37 years, I guess. And it, 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 I can't tell you the transformation that's taken place in my life because I know the Father, because my spirit cries out, Daddy, Father. It's enabled me to take all kinds of uh, attacks from the enemy. It's, I could go on describing all that it's meant, but I just want to, for the moment, just hover in to prayer, because you can never, ever know worship until it's in the context of knowing the Father. That's why I'm saying these things. Because you notice what it says here. He says, the Father's seeking such to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not God although he is God, you understand what I'm saying, but it's in the revelation of the Father that we really come into the fullness of worship. And if you've had a terrible natural father experience, or even a reasonably good father experience, when you meet the Father, then nothing satisfies and nothing satiates you like that revelation. The irony is that I had a father who was materially good to me. He wasn't a bad father, he provided for me very well, he was faithful. In many ways he was a good man, but he was so wrapped up in himself, he was so shy and so locked into himself, we never really knew each other. I can never remember my father ever putting his arm around me in affection and saying, Alan, I love you. We just never had that relationship. I didn't know that's what sons and fathers were supposed to do. And so when I became a father, then I modeled myself on what I knew of father from my dad. So I had this cold, distant relationship with my kids. Until I met the father. And when he poured his father love into me, and began to show me what fathering was all about, I, I was aghast at the way that I treated my kids. Now they were in their teens by then, and, but I apologized to them. But the wonderful thing is that because of that brokenness in me and that desire in my heart to make amends to them, God has brought us now into the most beautiful relationship. But I can still remember my daughter Rachel, who some of you know, and she's a powerful minister in her own right. I remember her coming to me when she was 34 and saying, Dad, I've never had a cuddle as a kid. Would you give me one, please? 
And this 34-year-old woman with children of her own wanted to live what it was like to be a four-year-old being cuddled by her dad because I'd never done it for her. And when we did this together, it was like a great healing in her. Now the irony is this, that all around the world I'm known as this wonderful spiritual father. And I want to tell you that 100% of this is the grace of God because I couldn't even father my own kids before I come to know the father. Now I father men and churches around the world and, and there's a flow of fatherhood from the great Holy Spirit from whom all fatherhood derives its name in heaven and on earth. It flows through me to meet the needs of many wonderful men and many churches around the world. Now that's what it's done for me. And I feel God told me just to say this, although it's not in the notes, but it's in the Bible. But it's here in John 4. It's there. He's, the Father is seeking such to worship him. And he wants those to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, I can do that. I can cry, Daddy, and maybe for some of you tonight, as you get into the atmosphere of intimacy and worship, this could be your moment when you meet the Father and it will have a transforming effect upon you as it has upon me. And then you'll be able to apologize and make compensation for the inadequacies of your life which have denied others what they are entitled to. I'm talking particularly to men, but for women who've never known the Father, never known what it's like to be loved by a Father, if you come to know the Father, all those longings which you've never experienced in the natural will be more than fulfilled by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. So men or women, we need this revelation. I'll just say this one more thing to this. In uh, Luke chapter, I'm sorry, in John chapter 11, as Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus, you remember what he said? It says he cried out with a loud voice, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. And we're told he said that not because God was deaf. He said it because he wanted those around him to know why he always got his prayers answered. Because fathers cannot refuse sons. Hello. Now this is a true story, and some of you have heard me tell this in different places, but I want to repeat it this morning. Somewhere between 1966 and 69, I don't remember exactly when, I had a friend in England who was in, in, responsible for a large charity which did a lot of work in uh, Africa and India, drilling wells, ag doing agricultural work. It was, it was meeting the, if you like, the ministering to the social needs of those nations. And he had the opportunity to present the needs of his charity to the present husband of Queen Elizabeth of England. He's called the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, if you like. He's not the king, but he's a very, very influential person. And if he was able to get his royal patronage on his charity, it gave him access to large uh, funds of, of, uh, which were of charitable organizations. And so it went a lot, a lot for him to get this royal approval. He got the opportunity for a 15-minute interview in one, I forget exactly when, but it was between 66 and 69. It's a true story. And he put on his best suit, travelled down to London by train, and he had the you know, letters of invitation and the passes. He went through the various levels of security into Buckingham Palace and then into the private 
waiting room of the great man himself. And then precisely at four o'clock, he had an appointment at four, the private secretary of the Duke of Edinburgh came out and said, the Duke is ready to see you now. And he went in to see this great man. He said, he said, I'd written down everything I wanted to say. I wanted to make every minute count. I got 15 minutes. I wanted to convince this man that he would become the royal patron of our charity. Then I could get all kinds of access to various trust funds and it would make a big difference to what we could do. He said, just as I sat down, I was just about to begin to speak and, and plead my case for my charity. He said, the door flew open. Another door flew open, and it was young Prince Edward, at that time was probably about seven or eight years of age. He came running into, into this study and said, Dad, my toy's broken. And the Duke said, excuse me, I need to attend to the needs of my son. And he, he, he fixed his toy, it took him nine minutes. And when he completed, he sent the little boy off and said, run away now because I need to talk to these gentlemen. Then he turned back to my friend and said, I'm very sorry, but I have another appointment at 4.15. You'll have to say everything in six minutes. He did say everything, and he did get the royal patronage. But he said this to me, and I've never forgotten what he said. He said, you know, Alan, in those few minutes, I learned there's all the difference in the world between being a petitioner and being a son. Hello. Now, do you pray as a petitioner? Or do you pray as a son? Because see, sons have rights. Sons have a relationship. And what loving father would not make all his resources available to his son? But also sons have responsibilities. Amen? And if that can happen to you tonight, if you can go from believing about the father to knowing the father, and if you can change from praying as a petitioner to asking as a son, sons always get their prayers answered. Father has to answer sons. If you learn, CG said, if you learn to pray as a son, then you're going to get answers like, he said, the father will do it for you. That's what he said. Now, Jesus does not mediate our prayers. And we don't need to add in the name of Jesus at the end of our prayers, although many of us do it out of habit. What Jesus does is he mediates the relationship. He brings us by his glorious risen life and by what he accomplished at the cross, he brings us into the same sonship by grace that he has always enjoyed by nature. And I want to tell you today, I'm proud. Some of you are pleased to be Alan Vincent's son in the spirit. I tell you, I'm proud to be God's son, just the same as Jesus is. There's no difference in the way he treats me as a son and the way he always treated Jesus as a son. Jesus is by, by right of nature. Mine is just an amazing gift of grace, but the relationship's just the same. I never doubt will he provide for me. I never doubt, you know, all I need to know is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? It, it, I can't convey to you how it just transformed everything. To live in this life as a grace-filled son of God was the most amazing revelation that I've ever had, and it just changed everything. But one of the things it did was it changed my prayer life. And it, and it, was, it filled me with worship. Now, I didn't know any better when I first got filled with this. I mean, I was so full of joy and anointing. I got the Baptist hymn book and sang every hymn right the way through. 
I mean, I've got better songs to sing now, although some of those are okay. But there's an old movement in Great Britain called the Plymouth Brethren Movement. And, and they have a special hymn book which is called Hymns Concerning Himself. And they are absolutely gorgeous worshipping hymns. Oh, I, I could try to sing some of them, but the words are just incredible. And when I was in one of those churches uh, quite a few years ago, and they had this part, and I got these, and I read these words, I said, these are fantastic, have you got the music? And I, I've learned some of them, they're just incredible. And he said, yeah, we never use that hymn book these days. They've lost it. And we've got to recover this, beloved. Amen? Well, let me move on, because I have to finish on time, or a cannon goes off at the back and blows me out. <laughs> The next one, which we already touched on, Mark 15, 37 to 38, the moment it says, Jesus cried, it's finished. I've done the work on the cross, which fully pays for sin, because that word finish, it's the word, Terios! It's shouted out like the cry of a gladiator making the killing thrust in a battle. Got him! It wasn't a cry of pain. It wasn't a cry of, oh, I'm dying. It was the cry of victory, beloved. Yes. And the word teleos was used in accountancy when you had debts against your name and when everything was paid and there was no more to pay, they'd write teleos and it could be translated, nothing to pay. It's complete. It's finished. Nothing to pay. Please notice that. It wasn't three days in the tomb that got our sins dealt with. It was complete on the cross. The three days in the tomb was for a different purpose altogether. Don't tempt me or I will go into that. Because <laughs> you've got to understand these things. He said, it's finished! And God went, <coughs> come in. Now we can permanently live in David's tabernacle. Now it's not just a prophetic thing for 33 years. This is now, we can all live this way now because the cross has done it all. We never, ever, ever need veils separating between man and God. Amen, have you got it? Do you live there? Hebrews chapter 10, let's just look at that. I tell you, Hebrews, I'm going to spend a whole school of the word on Hebrews. And we're going to get zapped in ways that are unbelievable. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brethren, are you there? Therefore, brethren, having boldness, or if you like, confidence, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, literally translating the Greek, by a freshly slain way, would be the translation. It's in, what's, it's in the present continuous tense, because it's a con present continuous reality in the eternal realm. The blood of Jesus is as freshly slain today as it was in the days of Abraham, because it's all in that eternal now having boldness to enter in 
to the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a freshly slain way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our hope without wavering, for he is faithful who promised. Yes. Let me just mention one more thing. Right often through the scriptures, you will hear the Holy Spirit being described as the guarantee. You come, you come across it several times in Ephesians, you come across it in Colossians. And that word guarantee, it's a financial term. Today, at least in England, we would use this term, it's the earnest money. When you're about to deal in some financial transaction, you're going to buy a piece of land, you're going to buy a property, and you've come to the place of contract, and you give to the man the earnest money, which is usually 10%. And you're saying, look, I really mean to buy this property, I'm really going to buy this land, so here's 10%, and I'm going to get the rest, and I'm coming back, because I tell you, it's as good as bought, as far as I'm concerned. Now, if you don't intend to come back with the rest of the money and buy the whole, you wouldn't give the 10%, because you lose it if you break the contract, amen? So what we're being told is this, that God would not have given you the Holy Spirit if he didn't intend to give you the whole package. Hello. If you've got the Holy Spirit, have you got the Holy Spirit? Has he given you the Spirit? Now he's the witness to you of God's serious intent to bring you into everything the Word describes. If he didn't mean to get you there, he wouldn't have given you the Holy Spirit. He that begun a good work in you will give up because you're much harder than he thought you were. Is that what it says? What does it say? He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's finished. So have boldness. Believe how powerful that blood is come through the veil of his flesh into the Holy of Holies where no one has ever been able to come. David, anticipating this by revelation, lived this way those thousand years before the earth for 33 years to give us a taste of what it was going to be like. That's the only way you can live in David's tabernacle. If you live behind a veil of unworthiness, you can't come into David's tabernacle. Hello? So maybe some of you tonight, you're going to have to deal with that. If God be true, then every man's a liar. Amen? I mean, I could jump all over the Bible right now. My, I'm, I'm humming with this. All right, let's move on. Okay, let's move on. We are invited, this is verse page 13, we're invited to live permanently behind the veil in a way that even the high priest of the Levitical priesthood in Moses' day wouldn't have dared to live. He came once a year and not without a complicated sacrifices. And in, in, you know, in those days, this is a tradition which I've heard tell, and I think it's true, that they were so nervous about getting close to God that they would tie a rope on his ankle when he went into the holiest of all. Because if he dropped dead, no one was going to go in there and get him. They would just pull the body out. If he hadn't done all the appropriate sacrifices and God got angry and smote him to death, they weren't going to go in to get him. 
But this is something incredible that anyone who, who des anyone who desires. They can live there. And then it takes us on immediately to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And with, you see, wherever Moses has read, what is there? There's a veil. That's what, so if you live by Baptist law, Pentecostal law, or African-American church law, or by any kind of law, by Jewish law, then you put a veil between you and God. And you can't live in the tabernacle of David. But with unveiled face. You know, some time ago, years ago, I was asked to teach on the whole subject of ladies' head covering, which is a fascinating subject. Don't ask me to get into that now. <laughs> but I used to cover her head because we thought it was biblical. And God gave me revelation to show me why we don't do it today. But during that time, God spoke to me and he said, he said, Alan, listen to me. He said, the angels cover themselves. They cry, holy, holy, holy. He said, the only created being that can come into my presence, unveiled, is redeemed men and women. And I thought, wow. He said, don't you abuse that privilege. I said, how can I? He said, well, I'm trying to come in casually or in in dirt. He said, don't come in here and ignore the privilege which is yours. That's why men, and I hate this idea in our casual days of guys walking into the presence of God with their baseball cap on. I want to snatch the thing off because it offends me because I believe it offends God. You know why? Because men are allowed the only created being, even the angels ca cannot and must not do this because they are not the heirs of salvation like we are. Because the purpose of veiling yourself was to declare your unworthiness. That's why I cannot stand this habit that's coming in of taking the old Jewish prayer shawls and putting them over our heads in his presence. That offends me. Because I'm saying I'm not worthy. God says you're insulting what my son did for you at Calvary. If you're saying you're not worthy, when I'm saying you're worthy. Now for a man there's no confusion. But for women in certain cultures, and, and, and uh, Mohan would tell you this, in the villages of Andhra Pradesh in India, women always cover their heads in the presence of men. It's just an instinctive thing. If a woman walks down the street of an Indian village with her head uncovered, with her hair flowing, she's declaring her promiscuity. You can say, there goes the village prostitute, because that's how she advertises herself. And so, for a woman who's been saved by Jesus and is totally free in his presence, in, if you like, the privacy of their home, with an unveiled face, she can behold the glory of the Lord. But if she walks out into the street like that, what does it say to the village? It says, this woman's become a loose prostitute. It, it, it dishonors her husband and it dishonors the Lord. So she's allowed, in certain cultural circumstances, to cover her, her head so as not to send the wrong signal. What it literally says in the Greek, it says, it says, it says this, it, the, the sign of authority on her head isn't even in the Greek. That's chauvinistic translators that have put it in. It's not in the, not in the Greek text at all. It's not there. 
What it says is this. It says, and, and it's put in such a way, this, this comes 65 times in the New Testament, and I've checked out every one of them, because the subject of the sentence every time has authority over the object of the sentence. For example, in John 10.35, Jesus says, I, using the same word, I have authority over my life. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it up again. Now, that's exactly the same construction as what it said about a woman in 1 Corinthians 11. She has authority over her head. In other words, she has the right to choose whether to or not to cover her head, depending upon her cultural circumstances. Because if she was to enjoy her privilege as a, as, as a saint before God with unveiled face, beholding as, a, in the, as, as beholding the glory of the Lord, she can do that in the privacy of her home, but if she did it in the street, people might get wrong ideas about her. Does that make sense to you? And so God permits women to make the, the discreet choice according to their cultural circumstances. Now in America, it doesn't mean a darn thing whether you cover your head or not, does it? It doesn't say anything about your moral purity, or it doesn't say anything. And so to have to wear your head as a religious, to have to cover your head as a religious sign is totally misunderstanding of the Scriptures. But men and women together can come into his presence. Even the angels can't do it. The archangels don't do that. They, they cover themselves by holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord, but, but redeemed man, redeemed woman with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, what happens to us? We're changed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. You see, when you get into intimacy, there's impartation. Jesus basically said the same thing in John chapter 15 when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Unless the branch abides in the vine, what happens to it? It dies and it has to be cast away. So there's many, many Christians saying, oh Lord, I'm not worthy. And there's, it's like a branch hanging two inches away from the vine. There's no way the sap can get into you. And so many, many Christians die in terms of vital Christian life because they have this, this lying deception of the devil that they're not worthy. But if you will receive what the Bible says and if you will plunge yourself joyfully into Christ, say, I'm accepted in the beloved. I, I will behold without veil the glory of God. Then the life can flow and there's impartation. And the very life of God becomes your life and you become someone who now, you know, they, they took note of the disciples that they'd been with Jesus. There was something that flowed into them because of that relationship. So intimacy is a tremendous thing. Let me just move on, because we've got to finish in sort of the right place. Now when that power flows into us, it does great things in us. Let's go to 1 John, please. I just want to quickly look at this. 1 John. John is preparing the church to take the city of Ephesus. He wrote these words as part of that preparation. And if you come to 1 John chapter 1, he tells us in verse 2, the life was manifested 
We've seen it, we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and which was manifested to us. Now listen to verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare, or more accurately, we proclaim it to you, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now the word fellowship, koinonia, this is the meaning of that word. It means to be joined together in a common life. It means to be joined together in a common purpose. What John is telling us is this. You see, John went through various stages. I'll say them as quickly as I can. Stage one was he saw the eternal life of God shining forth from the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first effect was to attract him. He came running to that light because those that are of the truth will come to the light. Amen? He came running to the light. He became an admirer of the life, but he couldn't imitate the life. Then as he got nearer and closer, the glory of that life, compared with the shabbiness of his own life, it then brought him to a stage of condemnation. And these are the stages we go through. So when you start coming into intimacy, it can have this effect upon you. Drawing near to God makes you feel rotten because you're so stinkingly rotten compared with the glory and beauty that he is. Now please don't run away because of that. Because if you stick in there, things are going to change. The next thing that happened to John was he began to long for that life instead of his own life. He longed, if you like, for the exchange. Maybe that's where some of you are in this meeting. You've, you've seen in the glory of his life the, the, the rottenness of your own life and you just don't want to live that way anymore. You say, Lord, I just want to be finished with all that stuff. That's good because you're on the way to transformation. But the process could not be completed until Jesus had cried, it's finished. The veil had been taken away and John, living in this intimate face-to-face -face relationship, this probably happened to him in the upper room because the John that came out of the upper room was very different to the guy that went in there. He couldn't stand Peter. There was mutual enmity. He was known as, with his brother James as the two sons of thunder. They, had, they lived on a, few, a short fuse. You got the wrong side of John, he'd explode in your face. He wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy those Samaritan villages because they dared to offend them. Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are of. You read John in the Gospels, he's a pretty revolting person. But bang, in that other room there's a transformation and when he comes out the upper room, he loves Peter, he walks with Peter, they stand together. Even the relationship he had with Jesus, he didn't like Peter trying to steal it from him. I mean, there was competition, there was jealousy, there was bad tempers, there was all the stuff which you and I are familiar with in our leadership teams. <laughs> Amen? But you get your leadership team to spend a period in David's tabernacle and they'll either get transformed or they won't stay anywhere near the place. What came out of the upper room was indivisible and was absolutely united. And John and Peter couldn't spend enough time together because of the transformation. And John goes down in history, you read Eusebius, you read some of the disciples of John, he was known everywhere as the apostle of love. 
You read his letter, it flows with this thing. Where did he get it from? He got it by the intimacy. It wasn't in him naturally, it was poured into him by the Holy Ghost. The love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 5, 5 says. It was totally transforming. Now, John says this, is what he's saying, look, that eternal life which we once admired, which I once ran to like a, a, a moth to a candle, then I got condemned by it, then I began to hate myself, and then finally, Calvary took place, then I spent those 10 days in the upper room. I had this mighty encounter with the love of the Father in the upper room who transformed me and I've come out the other side and if you want to know what God's life is like, come and spend a weekend with me and I'll show you. That eternal life which was with the Father, we now proclaim it to you. That's what he's saying. And our purpose is that you can come and have fellowship with us. Who is the us? It's John, it's the Father, it's the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, I live in the fellowship of the triune God and we have the same life, we're totally compatible and, and the love that's in them flows in me and the power that's in them flows in me, the life that's in them flows in me. He said, I've just become in a, somehow joined to this whole glorious trinity of the Godhead and the life pours into me and now I can pour it out to you. Now we write these things that you may come and have fellowship with us. That your joy may be full. Then he goes on in verse 5. You can see I've read John's Gospel. I don't read the first letter of John. Read it 40 times. You begin to understand it. Verse 5 says, this is the message we receive from him. Now this is the message. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here's the other thing which you're going to touch on then I'm going to close. I don't know what time I started. I haven't seen a ticker. Okay, I've got permission to go on till 2.30. <laughs> That's... See, here's, the, here's what he's saying. He's saying, this eternal life, which is the Father, is now flowing in me and I want you to come and have fellowship with us. I want you to come and live in that relationship where eternal life flows. Now once you get to that relationship, then the next thing you discover is that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. None at all. And John is careful in his first letter to define that darkness. One aspect of that darkness is lack of love for the brethren. Amen? If you don't love the brothers, you're not in the light. It's that simple. And John uses this word quite frequently in this first letter. He's a liar. And it's pretty straight talking. He's a liar. He's not of the truth. He said, this is the message. And he said, in, let's just, let me just read it. My mind's just slipped on the phrase. Come to verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, when you feel, if you like, the threateningness of his presence, because it starts to reveal the dirt that's in you, it starts to reveal the darkness in you, the last thing you want to do is to run away from it. Stay in the light, because the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you and allow you to remain in the light, even though there are things that God's got to deal with in your life. 
So one of the effects of intimacy is that God starts to show up the things in your life which are not as they should be. They're not right. And there's a great temptation to run away and hide because it's a bit scary. But what you've got to see is that God's intention towards you and towards me, the Bible says it's good continually. His whole purpose is that he might transform you into himself. That's his motivation and that's his purpose. And what could be more glorious than that? So why run away from his sanctifying spirit? Why run away? Because he's getting real with you and showing you what's dark about you that needs to be dealt with. Why run away from it when it can be turned to light? He says in the next verse, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves for the truth is not in us. Verse 9 says this, but if we confess our sins, and that word confess, it's the word homologeo, which means literally to say the same thing. In other words, what God wants you to do, he wants you to agree with him about what he sees that's not right in your life. Don't justify yourself, don't disagree with God, just say, yes sir, guilty as charged. Once you agree with God about what's wrong in your life, then it's not hard for God to do something about it. But while you won't admit it's there, he can't begin to transform it. If we say the same thing about our sin, that's what he's really saying. If God says, look, when you slammed the door and walked out the house this morning and you were, you were rude to your wife, you don't behave like that as a Christian, even though you are a pastor. And he said, well, she, she asked for it. No, no, I'm not talking about her, I'm talking about you right now. Just let's look at you. Forget about anything that you can find to justify behavior. That behavior is unacceptable and it's going to change. Okay, let's get that clear. That's sin. And when you get that honest with God, however provoking the circumstances, if the reaction is sinful, then that's what God wants to deal with. To change your circumstances so you don't get provoked doesn't deal with the problem. It just leaves it lying there waiting to pounce the next time. And God's got an amazing way of putting people in your way that expose what needs to be dealt with in your life. So maybe that guy on your fellowship team is just the guy you need to get you sorted out. But if we'll say the same thing, if we will confess our sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and then secondly, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once we agree about the sin, it's not hard for God to remove it. While we won't even admit it's there, he can't deal with it. So can you see how living in intimacy can be the most glorious, sanctifying experience that you could possibly imagine. You actually end up like God. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are changed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And all this is by the Spirit of the Lord. It's something that God does for us, but we've got to be open for him to do it. And maybe some of you tonight won't be quite as happy and clappy as you thought it was going to be. 
because he's going to perhaps come and deal with some issues. Don't run away. This could be your best night. And I'm speaking for experience. I mean, I'm, none of us can teach you theory here because we've been through it. Thank you. I want to link that momentarily with Psalm 139, just because this is what David experienced in the tabernacle. We're going back to David's tabernacle. Let's just go there for these last few minutes before we have another break. Psalm 139. The first few verses describe the total knowledge that God has of David the psalmist. He says, you've searched me, you know me, you know my sitting down, you know my rising up, you understand my thoughts, you comprehend my path, you are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue that you don't altogether know. You've hedged me behind and beforehand, you've laid your hand upon me. Listen to verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You see, here's a man who realizes to, that to live in transparent honesty, before, transparent honesty before God is not a terrifying thing, it's a glorious thing. Fancy God caring that enough about you. And that enough about me that he doesn't want to leave any part of my life that's still not the way it should be. Isn't that a wonderful thing? See, when you get to the right place, you see it. Then you come on to verse 13. Jump to verse 13. And he says this, he says, um, you formed my inward parts, you covered me, or more literally, you stitched me together, you wove me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are your works, and that my soul, my soul knows right well. Have you ever stood before a mirror and said, God, you did a fantastic job when you made me? Because you need to. You see, to not like yourself is the most serious rebellion against God. You're saying that God didn't know what he was doing when he made you. Let me repeat that. To not like yourself is the most heinous rebellion against God. Now what you've got to learn to do is what Paul clearly brings out in Romans, particularly in chapter 7. He says, when I do the things I don't want to do, and do not do the things that I want to do, he said, it's not me, it's sin dwelling in me. See, Paul has made the distinction between that creative beauty that he is in God's perfect creativity, and what sin has temporarily has spoiled. But once we get rid of the sin, what's left is absolutely glorious. And I came to the place where I said, God, I like me. <laughs> and I don't want to be anybody else. I think you did a fantastic job when you made me. And that my soul knows right well. You see, this is good for you, but when you start saying it about your husband or your wife, it changes your marriage. Because yeah, right. if God made Eileen the way he, wants, he made her, who am I to try and change her? And I say, dear Lord, you may... Uh, my precious wife Eileen is fearfully and wonderfully made and that my soul know right well and I rejoice in her as she is with all these strange ways of thinking which drive me nuts at times. <laughs> I'm one of these one-track thinkers. She can handle 25 things at once. And remember all of them. I sometimes even forget the one thing that I'm doing. 
But I tell you, I've come to love my precious one more than I can describe in words because I've seen her in all the beauty of God's creativity. Now, okay, there's a few bits of sin here and there. There's a lot, there's a lot less now than there was because she's had an earnest seeking after God all the decades which we've been together. We'll, we'll be married 50 years next year. And it gets better and better all the time because we've grasped these principles. You see, when you accept the gold in yourself, and there's some temporary peripheral aberrations which sin has spoiled and dented the edges of who you are, but that's not you, that's just sin, and God's got powerful means of removing it, so that what's left is absolutely glorious. God doesn't need to change you, he just needs to get the sin out of you to leave his perfect creative handiwork unspoiled by that temporary aberration of sin. Then you're fantastic. And you can glorify him and serve him and give joy to his heart in a way that no one else ever can. There's no one like Alan Vincent, there never will be. God doesn't want two of them, one's enough. But he does want the one. And I can glorify him and serve him in a way that none of you can. And you can do the same in your unique personality. Amen? You got that? Thank you. Now in that context, the psalmist says, Search me, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me. I'm not terrified. I, couldn't, I can't wait to get rid of those bits of sin that spoil the beauty in which you originally made me. I'm on your side. There's a great phrase in one of Tozer's books. I think, it's, I think it's either the root of righteousness or the pursuit of holiness. But he says this. He says, there comes a point in our lives when we get revelation on what I'm teaching you now. And he said, then we take sides with God against ourselves. And we're as enthusiastic as God is about getting rid of these aberrations of sin. And when, you, when God and I are agreed, there's no way that thing can survive. And so one of the great powers of intimacy, one of the great powers of spending time in his presence is that this process goes on, and even while there's pain in removing the aberrations of sin, there's these loving arms saying, I love you, and I, and I tell you, I can't wait to make you into the perfection in which I originally created you. Your acceptance is never, ever in doubt. But when you grasp these things, like David evidently did, where did he get these lessons? In the tabernacle. In his presence, he saw this amazing God and said, David, I love your heart, but there are certain things you do that I don't like, and we're going to change them. And he said, oh Lord, go ahead, I can't wait, I can't wait. It's, it's wonderful to me to think you're going to take that much trouble. It's wonderful to me to think that you know me. You, when I say things, you know why I'm saying them. Better than I do. I want all my inward parts. You know, you read Psalm 51. He doesn't want a, a ceremonial cleansing. He wants God to deal with his inward parts. And he'll do the same for us. And then out of that incredible relationship, like the Apostle John, we can say, well, if you want to know what Jesus is like, come and spend a weekend with me and I'll show you. I mean, I used to be absolutely revolting, but that guy's dead. He doesn't live anymore. And then through you can flow. Once the powers come into you, then it can start to flow out through you. It doesn't stay there. We're not, we're not to be a, 
a, a dead sea with life flowing in, there's got to be an outlet. Which I'll just mention, we're going to close now. Just at the end, the bottom of page 13. Then this great power flows through us. Now I think I'm going to leave that, maybe touch on it after the break. We're just about at the point where we should have our next break. So let's just stop. I just want to pray and then we're going to close. Father, I pray these great and glorious truths that fill your word and give us such hope and such expectancy. I pray for every one of us in whatever state we're in, however much we feel whole or damaged or hurt or wounded, I pray, Lord, in tonight's gathering that for many this will be the moment when they meet the Father and the Spirit cries within them, Daddy! Father! And the revelation comes and then we begin to joyfully work with you to the outworking and full revelation of that glorious new person that you created us to be. We want to thank you that you've got such incredible love for us. Thank you, Lord, for this so great salvation. It's so, it's so amazing yes. that I can stand before you with an unveiled face. And Lord, because of the power of your so great salvation, Lord, you've raised me with Jesus above the angels to cry, Daddy, Father, and to speak to you and live as a son. Lord, it's absolutely awesome. We pray it may become functional, burning reality for each and every one of us. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. <laughs>